there, everyone, and welcome to another special throwback episode of the Sination Podcast. So before we had this current format of genre, a genre per month, we weirdly did a genre per episode. And I know that sounds insane, and it was insane. We were doing it was it was Thomas and me and then our other good friend Ben Gertz, who was one of the original kind of creators of the podcast back in the day, many, many years ago. But we would cover a genre per, genre per episode, and one of, the, one of the ones we did that we thought did very well and we liked talking about was an episode on fictional bands and fictional singers. And we liked kind of looking at the, how those movies um, were kind of gateway, gateway drugs in a way to certain musical eras for people like our age. And we noticed that that episode done fairly well, and we noticed that also on Letterboxd it was, it was one of our more popular lists that we had. And so we wanted to kind of come back to it, Thomas and I, and kind of tackle it again, tackle that genre again, and spread it out over an entire month. And I think it was our first time we had done that, really, where we took an old genre we, we discussed in the previous version of the show and spent a whole new kind of month on it. And this is coming from May of 2021, so a, a while ago. And we covered certain movies like That Thing You Do. We did an episode on that, which I wrote uh, we did an episode on Walk Hard, which Thomas wrote, and our other buddy Hunter Barcroft came on as a guest on that one. And then we also did Josie and the Pussycats, which is kind of an underrated cult classic, I feel. And it was kind of fun going through all these movies and also kind of looking back at how they were big favorites of ours at a certain point in our lives with that thing you do when I was a, when I was a kid. Uh, Joe's and the Pussycats, I remember watching for the first time when it came out on on blue on DVD, actually, a Blockbuster. Um, Walk Hard I came to later, but one that I think Thomas and I are really excited to talk about on that month, that series, was Almost Famous from 2000. I'm a big fan of this movie. I know Thomas is a big fan of this movie. This is one where we always discuss kind of coming back to it at some point because we wanted to really dive deep into it and kind of find out the history around it because it's one that many people love have have loved and fallen in love with over these past few years. And it's you had the musical that came out. And I think the specific era of music in the 70s, specifically the early 70s, is a favorite of many people. And so it was kind of my introduction, as well as Thomas says too, to kind of this era of music. So it was fun to dive into this movie and kind of discuss Cameron Crowe and discuss kind of the cast. So I hope you enjoy this episode that Thomas and I did on Almost Famous from May of 2021. Check out the other episodes in the series. I think it's like episode 160 to 163, I believe is what it is. So check those out. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy this episode of Almost Famous. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. This month, we are covering a fan favorite that we don't feel is talked about as much sometimes, and that's the fictional band slash singer genre, but specifically bands. Um, and last week, we talked about one of the more popular films of the genre with That Thing You Do and talking about those wonderful wonders or oneaters, however you want to say it. <laughs> and this week, I think it's another fan favorite of the genre, and that's the 2000 film Almost Famous, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. But before we dive in, dive into Almost Famous, uh, Thomas, what were some of the things we talked about last episode about this genre? We talked a lot about nostalgia, which isn't necessarily going to come into play for like all of these films. 
but it, uh, honestly a decent amount of them within this this genre usually it's it's kind of rare for the films that we're going to talk about and and the films that are on our letterbox list to be set in like perfectly present day yeah there's not many of them so it's it's usually a way to kind of look back uh nostalgically and it, and it's also usually kind of a way which we saw with that thing you do and we'll see with this movie for sure to create kind of an allegory for these real bands or to create an amalgam of yeah. many of the bands of that time like with the thing you do obviously there was a huge beatles influence but it was also touching on all these american bands that came up after the beatles and we're trying to kind of capture that sound and we're able to popularize on the british invasion as these like homegrown american uh, kids mm -hmm. And we'll definitely talk today about how Stillwater is. Uh, we 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 will go into details of all the different <laughs> bands that uh, that have a little bit of, you know, a little a sprinkle of this and a sprinkle of that into Stillwater. You'll go into I know it with Crow's kind of background, but like he pulled from a lot of different bands, a lot of different experiences that he had uh, with with bands of the era. And it is this is movie does capture a very specific time uh specifically 1973 mm -hmm. um kind of the beginning the early beginnings of the 70s kind of it's like transitioning from the 60s music style and coming after like woodstock in 69 and and it's a new kind of decade and things are beginning to kind of change in like the rock and roll uh landscape as is very much discussed in the movie and there's also like i mean with some of these band movies too like in terms of tropes like some of them also are a little bit like road trip movies too in a, in a, in a weird mm -hmm. way. Like that thing you do is kind of, kind of a road trip movie to an extent where like it's showing them go, I mean, in a, in a brief montage, like showing them going from like uh Erie PA to um, Pittsburgh to uh, the, their kind of road trip tour and gaining success. And, and this one, you have a similar thing where it's, you, you have this montage, this tour across the country that is kind of a, 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 a usually sequences within a film of this nature um this is interesting just because the main focus of the movie is is not really the band the band is kind of like it's it's a big piece of it but like the main character is a rock writer he's the person we're following so we're not seeing like the the origins of this band like many other films that we might cover or have covered before yeah um right. which is interesting but yeah, so we talked about a lot this last week, and I think we'll see some more kind of similarities between that thing you do and, and Almost Famous. Um, but Thomas picked this movie for this week. I mean, it's one of my favorite films, so thank you for picking it. Uh, this is my Philadelphia story when I picked Philadelphia story for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, can you give it? Let's just dive into it. Tell us about Almost Famous, Thomas. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about Cameron Crowe's 2001 film, Almost Famous. 2001 uh, or 2000? Did I say that wrong? Was it 2000? Late 2000. 2000. Yeah, it comes at, it, it like, because the Oscars, it was, it was at the Oscars for 2001, but it comes yeah, out late 2000. Yeah, yeah. Well, for those of you who haven't seen Almost Famous, there will be spoilers today. But um, the plot is a 16-year-old uh, aspiring rock journalist named William Miller catches the eye of Rolling Stone magazine who hire him unaware of his age to go on tour with a rising rock band Stillwater and document their rise to fame. Got a amazing cast. This is the yeah. part where we're usually intro notable cast. Uh, 
can't cover everyone yeah because it's really just like a who's who you know this movie dropped in 2000 it was like a who's who of who was about to have a great decade yeah do you, do you want to do a, Ma- a matt damon cameo award too in this one because there's a lot I of do, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and i have a surprise okay. award category okay. i'll wait okay all right okay. we'll hold it <laughs> but anyway cast patrick yeah. fugit as william miller yeah francis mcdormand as william's mom Kate Hudson as Penny Lane, a Band-Aid, not a groupie, who tours with Stillwater. Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond, the lead guitarist for Stillwater. Jason Lee as Jeff Beebe, the lead singer. Philip Seymour Hoffman as the legendary real-life rock writer Lester Bangs. And many, many, many more people in, in, in supporting roles. It was uh, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, coming off of uh, Jerry Maguire. We'll talk about kind of what what happened in the in-between. It was a four-year period between Jerry Maguire and the release of this film. Uh, Shot by John Toll, a very legendary cinematographer who had an incredible 90s. Legends of the Fall and a Braveheart into, like it or not, Jack and the Rainmaker (laughs) back-to-back. (laughs) <laughs> mixed mixed feelings about those films but you got it i mean this dude was working with francis ford coppola that's that's pretty yeah. legit and uh he went from that to do the thin red line with terrence malick so the guy stacked resume for did a lot of stuff yeah and uh also very noted notable the uh songwriters and rock uh consultants uh on the film nancy wilson who was cameron crowe's wife at the time of the band heart and Peter Frampton of being Peter Frampton uh, <laughs> served as, as songwriters and, and rock consultants to help the the actors get the real feel for a rock band within the movie. So, Brandon, you're, you've already said you love this one. Yeah. What are some initial thoughts beyond that? What's your history? What's your history with Almost Famous? Well, that's that's a good way to start it. My history with Almost Famous is I talked about my sock hop days with that thing you do last week. Uh Almost Famous is one of those movies where my mom and I really love because it's my, my it kind of captures like it's my mom's kind of like teenage years around this time. And I think it was like it was on cable one night randomly and my mom might have put it on or something and she yells to like my in my room like, hey, you should watch this. This looks kind of good. You might like it. <laughs> Because I, I don't remember if I started it, like, I feel like I hopped, like, hopped into it. It was, like, the beginning of the movie. Because I used to do that more with cable. You just kind of hop in and, like, find, mm-hmm. like, weird, interesting things. It's not saying this is weird, but, like, things you don't know of, they're just on. And this is one that I, I fell in love with in high school. And it kind of became, like, uh, the, like, top 20 movies or whatever for me that I, I loved kind of revisiting and love the music i think i bought the soundtrack i think i did buy the soundtrack on like cd and just listened to it constantly and it was one that like i always liked introducing to people like i have friends who like oh who would say like oh kate hudson's like a terrible actress and i'm like well you haven't seen almost famous if you're gonna say a comment like that you're mm-hmm. coming in yeah. you're coming in kind of ignorant here and usually they'd watch it and be like oh you're right she actually is really good i'm like yeah there's a reason she's worked for two decades or so like mm-hmm. in this business. Like you, she, I think, I think it's kind of the, the Matthew McConaughey thing in a way, not to say that, that they're on the same level in terms of movies, but I think in a similar vein is that McConaughey was known for rom-coms for so long. And I think Hudson coming off of almost famous 
has that same kind of uh, stigma mm-hmm. for a while to a lot of people. But yeah, so it was that. And I'm again, I'm into the music stuff. I read uh, that a buddy of mine told me to read uh, Jan Winner's biography, who was kind of the creator of Rolling Stone magazine. So I have a little bit of like in like information on that, which is what like he kind of pulls from. So it's interesting seeing kind of the two uh, two sides of it with that book and then with this movie because in that book there's a lot more cocaine i gotta say a lot more (laughs) cocaine than this movie so yeah it's always been a favorite of mine it's always been my life since high school and it's always a joy again it's very much like that thing you do for me where it's like i i've seen it so many times it's sometimes a little hard to be fully critical of it because it's just one that i'll put on of like once every year or so to watch it's a very long-winded answer of my (laughs) Of my thoughts of Almost Famous. But what yeah. about you? Uh, you know, my my history with Almost Famous is weird because it kind of parallels the movie a little bit. I think I might have I think I might have brought this up when we did our our shorter fake band episode. But yeah. um, when my sister was going away to college, I was in middle school, and my mom decided we were going to just buy her like a crate of rom com DVDs to like send her off to. That was going to be like her graduation present. And so went to like Walmart and went through the bargain bin and found all these rom-coms and found a copy of Almost Famous. I had never heard of it. And we just saw like Kate Hudson was on the cover. It said she had won a Golden Globe for it. So we were like, okay, this must be a rom-com. Kate Hudson's in it. You know, that's that's the reputation she had in like 2006. Um, So we bought it for her and we put it in that pack. And she went off to college for like a semester and she came back and had that one. And she was like, I think you might like this one more than I do. <laughs> because I was like really into classic rock already. School of Rock had sent me down that road a couple years yeah. earlier. Yeah. And so it, it really did kind of uh, parallel when Anita gives William her yeah. uh, vinyl collection. I, I had like a little DVD player and it was rated R. So I was like, I don't know. Like I was in like seventh, uh-huh. eighth grade. I was like, I don't yeah. know. If, like. My, my, I could watch rated R movies, but usually like my mom had to approve them or whatever. I was like, I just, I'm just watching this. So yeah, yeah. I would watch it in like 10 minute segments in like the <laughs> evenings when I was supposed to be doing my homework <laughs> on my little like portable DVD player. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is, this the, is movie. the Holy Grail. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that, that was your Tommy. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that was your yeah. Tommy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I guess, so both very, it seems like both very personal movies, uh, or a very personal movie for both of us. Um, so yeah. And just the music. I mean, it's like, it, it kind of, with certain films of that era, it's like, it really influenced my love of specific eras of music or specific bands or specific singers. So shout out to the guy off of the IMDB message board. Oh who, yeah. E- who emailed me the soundtrack because I was like, cause yeah. I really want the Stillwater music. I was like, I already own all these other songs, but I really need the Stillwater songs. Some guy was like, give me your email address. I've got not only the songs that are in the movie, but like a couple of songs they recorded that aren't in the movie. And yeah. he emailed them to me and I've got them. They're fantastic. They are. And and it's, it's, it's surprising they were not put on like part of the soundtrack, honestly, mm-hmm. or like kind of like, it's like when you think like say recently a movie that kind of comes to mind with like the fictional bands and songs, it's like, or singers, it's a, a star is born where they just released this huge, like, every song we recorded mm-hmm. that somewhat appears is on this soundtrack. Um, and and Almost Famous, I think, was more trying to be like, 
we're going to put like mostly the bands that we're worshiping and not the like fictional band we're creating. It's yeah. kind of odd when we're look, like, when looking at fictional band movies, I guess you could say it's like this band has like technically one song, I think, and that's Fever Dog. It's all like released mm-hmm. on the actual soundtrack. On the actual of the soundtrack. Album. But that's also yeah. back when, you know, in the prior to iTunes, soundtracks also kind of functioned as like greatest hit CDs. Yeah. You know, if you saw a movie and you liked like two or three of the songs in that movie, you're like, well, I'm going to buy the soundtrack. Yeah. Because that's going to give me all of those songs in one place. Um, yeah. Yeah. We could, yeah. We could talk about movie soundtracks and the way that's changed. But yeah. um, let's, let's move on to how this movie got made. Yeah, it's yeah, very so- interesting. Yeah. So, so like I said, Jerry Maguire comes out in 1996. Crow had been successful before. Mm-hmm. He had uh, written Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He had written and directed Say Anything, but Jerry Maguire was a whole other level. Jerry Maguire mm-hmm. was a massive, massive hit. Yeah. Gigantic. He'd done sing- singles in the, uh, the movie Singles as well. Yeah. That's like very much grunge, like kind of the grunge Seattle scene, like Seattle yeah. music scene as but well. Yeah. While, while he had been, while he was fairly well known, Jerry Maguire hit and everyone wanted a piece of Cameron Crowe at that point. So he finally kind of had enough clout to really get a passion project made. So. Around the release of Jerry Maguire, he had written an article for Live Magazine about his love for the 1970s rock and roll scene and how rock music had created a rift between him and his mother before ultimately bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Um, the magazine shut down and never published the article, but it got him thinking about writing this kind of story about his teenage years, his relationship with his mom, and his relationship with rock and roll. Uh, also... Cameron Crowe, much like William Miller, had been hired to write for Rolling Stone at 16 and toured with acts including the Almond Brothers, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, David Bowie, Hart, many more. Yeah. Crazy career for for a teenager. Yeah. Uh, And went on to write for Rolling Stone into his 20s. Yeah. Um, So he's been kicking around this idea. And in the late 90s, a director producer you may have heard of named Steven Spielberg had set up a little production company called DreamWorks. <laughs> DreamWorks. DreamWorks. Yeah. You might have heard of it. Um, and he was looking for projects. And his his friend and frequent collaborator, Lawrence Kasdan, reached out to Crow. Oh, wow. And said, you should come p- pitch Steven Spielberg, whatever you've got, whatever you're really passionate about. He's, he's listening to everyone right now. So Crow sent his script to Spielberg. It was 172 pages. Had not been edited down or anything. This was just his passion, his dream movie. Yeah. And he sent it to Spielberg. Spielberg called him two days later and he said, I want you to direct every word of this script. Um, remember that yeah. for later. That's going to come oh, back no. up. Oh, yeah. I, I can, I, for, for how I know the runtime is for the, the director's cut, I, I doubt, I, I'm pretty sure he shot every word. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so once Crow got the go ahead, he, he knew it was going to take a lot of prep work to really capture the the feel of the 1970s and and the and the feel of of rock and roll uh as the band in the script drew on his experience with multiple bands in the 70s he knew it had to be like an amalgamation of a lot of the bands that he knew and it had to sound like it came from the 70s so he brought on his wife at the time nancy wilson who was the a founder and lead guitarist of the band heart and his close friend peter frampton to start writing the music for this band Stillwater. Uh, in an interview with Peter Frampton, uh, Crow said that Peter Frampton remembers that we used to sit around and rip on all the people who tried to do a movie about rock from a supposedly authentic point of view. 
it was like a parlor game just ripping on all the movies that never got it right so when i told him come work with us on this movie it's about growing up in rock in 1973 he said what you've become one of them (laughs) you're trying to (laughs) capture something that can never be captured crow knew from the start that his movie was going to be different because it wasn't going to be about the spectacle of rock a lot of people had tried to make movies about the 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 drug scene in the 70s and how wild it was and the excess and he said almost famous is about falling in love with music at a young age when you weren't sure who your friends would be in the world but records were your friends and then you go out into the world and you meet people who love those same records who also become your friends it's an explosion of feeling like you belong and that was my rudder for almost famous so he had a you know he had a very different working starting off point than a lot of people you know it, yeah. it, it wasn't the goal to make some big rock and roll uh feature yeah um so next came casting as a high profile director at one of the hottest production companies in town crow was able to easily get the actors that he had written he had in mind when he was writing penny lane and russell hammond mm-hmm. so with sarah Pauly as penny lane wow that and brad pitt as russell hammond on board i knew i knew about pitt i knew about pitt um crow moved on to finding his avatar and william miller he had a huge open casting call uh, really hoping to find a fresh faced newcomer who's who still had that twinkle in his eye. Uh, and Crow eventually found 16 year old Patrick Fugit, who only had two very small TV credits to his name at that point. So there was a very lengthy rehearsal process and during which Sarah Polly backed out of the project to star in an indie production in Canada. And Pitt eventually backed out after confiding in Crow that he just didn't get it enough to do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I see Pitt in the role he's i mean he's too much of a movie star yeah like does that make sense like billy crudup kind of like fits this because i i've never seen billy crudup in anything at that Mm -hmm. point in time and i think he can't like he's a little bit younger uh and just has a little bit more of like like his care because of his look it has a more like by the seat of his pants type thing of like we're we're rising up and we're kind of uh a little unsure of like the success of this band mm-hmm. and for some reason bad brad pitch just oozes confidence to me and i just don't <laughs> know i just don't know if uh he would have that same kind of insecurities and hey, pitt's done insecure stuff before but like i just feel like he he it's still brad pitt at the end of the day yeah. it's still brad pitt so well, that's that's funny that you you mentioned you know that brad pitt is a movie star because after pitt and polly backed out crow decided he didn't want movie stars anymore um so he cast Billy Crudup as Russell. Crudup had, I think, like six credits to his name at that point. He had done a small part in Sleepers. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had done with a couple Brad other Pitt. films. Brad Pitt is, is in that with, I think, I think <laughs> they're like friends, if I'm not mistaken, in Sleepers. I feel like they go on trial together or something. Mm-hmm. There's, they're, they're, their characters are like kind of matched together, I believe. Interesting. And then, uh, and then for Penny, he turned to an existing cast member, uh, Goldie Hawn's daughter, Kate Hudson, who had very few acting credits at that point, had already been cast as Anita, William's sister. Um, oh! But she oh. had started, she had she had turned up a good showing at rehearsals. Crow was really impressed with what she was doing. And so she begged him for a chance to audition for the open penny slot. Uh, and then once she bumped up another second generation yeah. Hollywood kid and high school friend of Kate Hudson, Zoe yeah. Deschanel, daughter of uh, director of photography Caleb Deschanel, was brought in to play Anita. 
So, uh, so once the cast was locked down, rehearsals kicked into high gear, especially Rockstar Camp. Uh, <laughs> while the drummer and the bass player cast for Stillwater were actually existing musicians, uh, Billy Crudup and Jason Lee, who was cast for Jeff Beebe, were not. Uh, and while Jason Lee would be lip syncing for the film, they still wanted to have the the feel of a, of a rock star. So Frampton and Wilson worked with the group five days a week for six weeks to make them a believable rock band. And Frampton taught Crudup how to play enough guitar to be able to play um, on camera. And then so they wouldn't have to use any, you know, camera tricks to make it look like he was playing. Yeah, that's what that thing you do did. <laughs> Uh, once everything was in place, the cast and crew embarked on what would become Crow's longest and most expensive shoot yet. So, uh, Brandon, what are some favorite scenes? I mean, the whole movie. cover the no, whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, right out of the gate, I gotta say, Philip Seymour Hoffman in any scene he's in as Lester Oh, Banks. absolutely. Like, I just, when I, I think about a lot of this movie, but I think of him... Just Hoffman as Lester Banks in this entire film. Like, I feel like he has maybe five scenes, I feel like. Like, he has, like, the, the big kind of, uh, like, when he kind of comes to, comes to uh, meets William in San, in San Diego. And then it's, like, I think two or three phone calls. Mm-hmm. And Hoffman, I, I wanted to make, like, a montage of this, but Hoffman's one of the best phone actors of all time. <laughs> Because he's are he you gonna does, include happiness in your um... ha- happiness is one thing. <laughs> like I think uh, there's other ones that I think I, or punch drunk love is another one. Oh yeah. Like he he just he can do so many variations of just like phone acting, and I'm just like, <laughs> I just I want it like a, just a video montage of just him talking on the phone because like he's done it a lot in movies besides the ones we mentioned. And it's, it's 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 a variation of like angry and hurtful to like this very kind of sincere and I mean caring friend and he'll be like the stuff where he's jamming to music but then it's the then it's the like sitting on his bed alone and like talking about the uh uh like being uncool and everything mm-hmm. but like it's it's just all the stuff is phenomenal um, I think it's just a great intro of him at the radio station and just like just criticize the oh, doors Iggy Pop. Iggy Jim Pop, Morris, uh, yeah. isn't it a little early for Iggy Pop? Iggy Pop he's like no not for me and just like ch- chucks like the 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 doors record or whatever but it's like it's like yeah the doors jim morrison they're they're drunken p- buffoons betraying their poets give me the guess who they are drunken buffoons and that's poetic that's what makes <laughs> them poetic like it's just it's such a like a it's like his in that scene he's like this Tasmanian devil in a way just like again just like jamming to Iggy Pop but then it's like it takes it down a notch when he's having the at the at the like rest the the like the the ice or the um the empty restaurant that him and William go to and just like I was like you should talking about kind of the again Crow does a good job of of having Lester be this like here is what rock and roll is right now in 1973. Mm-hmm. And he is the one who's giving you kind of the what Rolling Stone is like, what the bands are like. It's in this like it's the chasing after the Beatles at like a few years after the Beatles where everyone's trying to be rock stars. It feels like um, and everyone's trying to be the Stones or someone. And that's why I think what's interesting when looking at, say, the Rolling Stone dynamic is because William's coming in worshiping Rolling Stone. 
like mm-hmm. Rolling Stone magazine, worshiping these bands. And in real life, like they like Rolling Stone hated these bands. Yeah. And that's what they talk about. And like Jeff the, says these, it, Jeff says it later yeah. on. Like, this is the band that trashed Zeppelin. Broke up yeah. cream. <laughs> and, 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 and 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 like criticized Layla. Like, and and I love in the Rolling Stone review that Peter Travers did, there's a parenthesis when they quote that line and it goes, editor's note, all true. Because like, <laughs> that's what they did. Because it was a lot of old people, older people who were worshiping the Beatles and Stones. They're like, who the hell are these people? Who is Led Zeppelin? We don't get these people. They suck. And we're just going to criticize them. And Rolling Stone, this thing about Jan Winter and Rolling Stone, they always like to prop up the people they like this is something to do with criticism that's why like they they hero worship a lot of the time Mm -hmm. but they hero worship specific people so at this point it's like they're worshiping the beatles they're worshiping bob dylan and they don't want these young long-haired guys coming in and and, like ruining the music um and just like to even go in a modern sense with that i'm sorry this is my rant on rolling stone and i apologize (laughs) um but like if you look at like the rolling stone greatest albums of all time list that came out 2020 and then look at the one that came out in 2012 the 2012 is just like 10 albums by the beatles 10 albums by dylan eight albums by bowie it's all like it's it's like kind of they weren't at this point really big and trying to find new artists mm-hmm. it was all about worshiping the old and so that's why this is why crow was so kind of important to the rolling stone model at that point was because they sent him out to the bands that hated rolling stone because he was a fan like mm-hmm. if they wanted a fluff piece, they sent the kid as they called him because that's what he did is that he went out and loved these bands. And, but yeah, so I think, but Crow does a good job of representing that in this movie. And he uses Lester, come back to Lester. He uses Lester as a good way to set up that world of like, the, again, it's the rock and roll. You're, you're getting the last gra- gasp of rock and roll. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it's like, um, it's almost like midnight in Paris. It's like, cause we're sitting here, you know, in 2000 watching this movie and being like, Oh man, like yeah. rock was so much better in 1973. And you're watching Lester be like, rock's dead, man. Yeah. You missed it. And that's what's, ha- and that's, what's happening with them. At like Rolling Stone. It's like, they're all folk. They're trying like, let's get out of the music scene. Let's do politics. That's why you're getting people like Hunter S Thompson, which they mentioned in the, in the, in the movie to be like the writer. They just want to cover. They want Jan winners wanted to cover bigger and better things. And music is not one of them. You got a scene that you want you want to bring up? Well, I was gonna say anything with you said anything with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm gonna say anything with Francis McDormand. Yeah. Um, but specifically, I love this scene so much. I love big Michael Angarano fan. You know, shout out Sky yeah. High, classic. <laughs> but um, he and I, 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 I saw you know last you know, recently was the 20 year anniversary of the release of this film, and Crow yeah. did a bunch of interviews with the cast and stuff. And I he did a he did an interview with just Patrick Fugic and, and Michael Angarano talking about, you know, basically them playing him. And they, he was talking about specifically like the, the scene when Michael finds out that he's 11, 11. <laughs> it's so good. 11. <laughs> it's so funny. And, and it's, and it's him and, and McDormand and, and Zoe Deschanel just play off of each other. So well, when Zoe Deschanel is like the kids at school call him a narc and she's like what does that mean it's a narcotics officer well what's wrong with that <laughs> and then the the two other McDormand scenes that I just love uh, the, that I'll, I'll you know if it's on TV the, the scenes that I'm really like looking for are either of the Francis McDormand and Billy Crudup scenes 
Yeah. Because their their energies combined are incredible. But the scene with her on the phone. On the phone with him. Yeah. Yes. Is incredible. It's so good. And it makes you realize just like what a good character she is. You yeah. know, she, she's, yeah, she can worry and yeah, she can kind of nag William. But when she really gets with Russell on the line and she's like, you're a good person, Russell. I, I can yeah. hear that in your voice. And then he hangs up and he's like, your mom really scared really me. Freaks- <laughs> Your mom really freaked me out. She yeah. does that. <laughs> and then when, and then it's so made the last scene is, I love the last scene of this movie so much. And when, when he shows up to the, the door yeah. and she opens it and he's just like trying to figure out where the hell she is. And she's like, you know, I really had a good feeling about you, Russell. There's hope for you yet. And he's yeah. just like, yeah, cause he thinks he's I? going to see, he's going to see Penny. Yeah. And then when he's walking down the hall, it's the, oh yeah he sees the the family picture he saying, sees I love pictures that. i love that the little like hand on the Zoe, hip yeah, Zoe hand on the hip <laughs> he's like or is she like, here who and yes <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like yes like <laughs> she's like oh are you coming to see me <laughs> yeah um i want to circle back on the on the crud up scene on the phone that's the scene i don't think pitt could pull off honestly mm-hmm. i'm gonna say this because i think in that moment, you see the youthfulness in Crudup as like he's still just kind of a kid as well. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's he's a, he's only a few years out of like living in his parents' like house and playing and playing in still water in the garage probably. Yeah. And so it's that moment where like every everything kind of, it comes back down to earth, and I just I don't know because Pitt at this moment in time was just so big. I don't think it's like because yeah I think like this is coming out of fight after Fight Club yeah I don't see Pitt in that scene where he becomes this very insecure and like childlike character that look that he gives William when he finds out how old William actually yeah. is yeah I just I think it's great you got another one yeah I I, I love um, obviously the the whole sequence at the party we'll talk about that more but the whole sequence yeah. at the party going into the tiny dancer sequence obviously very famous and f- for a good reason crudup's yep. crudup's great in it and and fugit's i think fugit's really great in that sequence as well like nobody give him any more acid <laughs> more <trust>. but i also <laughs> crudup at the end when he's just like look at you or it's like animate when he's like yelling yeah. and like trying to fight fugit and, or william and his manager's just like he only means like half of it yeah like, like, i hurt the flower yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah that entire like just party scene i think the i am a golden god i, I think i i think i did read that that was that's in there because that was like specifically written for pit because pit mm-hmm. was like blonde hair like uh uh like godlike in terms we'll, of stature we'll talk about that a little bit later because that okay, is cool. a direct quote from someone that um, it, i'm remembering that yeah that cameron that crow was on tour with i love the entire sequence when he meets stillwater that yeah. whole because he's he's there to to write about black sabbath and yeah he, he can't get in and then he meets stillwater and he goes on that that rant about you know what a fan he is and they're like well, yeah. come on uh, what's the uh, I'm, just incendiary. Like, I'm incendiary too man <laughs> I, I love jason lee is is so much it's fun great. in this movie yeah they, and then he they they go backstage and then he's got his whole like spiel no one can, about, expl- no one, no one can explain rock and roll maybe it's pete townsend maybe pete townsend <laughs> <laughs> and the chicks are great too man i yeah, sound yeah. like an idiot yeah <laughs> 
He prepared uh, everything. But it's just so exciting. It's you know, it is pure like like Crow said, like the the rudder of this film was like finding a place where you feel like you belong. And this yeah. movie is like pure wish fulfillment for being a teenager and just yeah. wanting to fit in with the cool people with the cool kids yeah and he does it's like you spend the whole like 25 minutes the first part or 20 minutes the first part of the movie of just like william not fitting in anywhere like he has no friends his best friend is, is probably his mom and that's like when he and he can't really talk about music with anyone because no one really understands him and then like once he arrives at this concert it's just like they all get me like mm-hmm. within the first minute, like few moments after the interview, it's like the first night of the first concert, they're putting him in their circle for their like, yeah. uh, like, like concert ritual of like being together as a band. And it's like, he, it's a whirlwind. It's like, he's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, 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 he's Dorothy and Oz or something like. And he's got that his, great moment when he's walking out afterwards and he's saying goodbye to like all the roadies and he's learned yeah. everybody's names and he thinks it's so cool that he knows everybody by their name. You're like, yeah, that would be me at 16 if, if I got pulled back at you know my favorite band you know if yeah. i at 16 had been pulled back at a foo fighters concert like that that would be me 100 percent. i was like i was like my chemical romance just say it thomas i know you want to say it you had a my chemical romance concert <laughs> no, foo, Fighter, yeah, foo fighters all the way at 16 <laughs> and i had all the albums foo fighters and kings of leon probably real quick i want to bring up within that scene a moment i really love and it's a it's kind of a it's it's a short moment but it's one of it's a beautiful music cue it's when when a uh, penny and and uh and russell meet again mm-hmm. like I mean, it's they're meeting for the first time but then you find out later it's not for the first time mm-hmm. but crow brings in Joni mitchell's river yeah and it's so beautiful of how he uses it because it feels like i wrote down it feels like a memory floating to the surface because mm-hmm. it's it's he puts it in the background almost like echoes of a different time and then slowly brings it up as you become, and it's kind of harkening back to their previous relationship of between Russell and Penny. Any more scenes? Uh, I mean, obviously the plane scene is, is a blast. Yeah. Uh, the plane scene is a lot of fun. Anytime the band fights, I think about too. Yeah. Like anytime the yeah. band well, fights. And, and the, the, I think the, the last one, and this is really Hudson's like, when, when, this is where her awards came from but the scene when this is, this is my pick i think too william is trying to kind of talk her out of yep, yep russell and talk her out of stillwater and he says they traded you for a pack what was it a six pack of beer and something they trade they trade they traded you to humble bucks. pie humble pie for 50 bucks and a pack of beer or something like and that and she says and she she starts to cry and then looks at him and says what type of beer and um god it's a beautiful shot there's a there's a great there's a great interview with crow and her i think another all the, there, there's a lot of a lot of 20 year anniversary stuff yeah, out yeah, there yeah. everyone did it and um there's a great interview with her and crow that he did with with her fugit and and crud up where he talks about the the filming of that scene particularly and and he knew going into it he was like this is penny's make or break moment and he kind of let hudson run with it he said he, he really didn't want to direct it too much he wanted to see what she came up with naturally and and she blew him away it's funny that scene still has a massive impact on me and, and i end up finding out again years later that it had just a big impact with everyone else because that was a scene i remember we had to pick a scene in my college course at alabama to analyze a visual structure of a scene 
Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I picked that one. And I think it's a well-directed scene of how not just the acting between Hudson and Fugit and and kind of the 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 goals and obstacles within the scene, but Crow and John Toll do a phenomenal job uh, in the editing, I assume, too, of like structuring the scene because mm-hmm. it goes from it's it's kind of cl- like close up, close up over the shoulders where it's kind of together. There's wide shot. It shows they're kind of all like they're in their own world together discussing it. And it's that moment when he once he reveals that news, those kind of um, over the shoulder shots they've been doing. He cuts into a, a tight close up of Hudson. And it's that look she gives up to him when she finds out again, when she starts to cry. And that it just it's it holds on that shot that entire time. And it's just it's such a beautiful shot and such a a beautiful moment from from Hudson. All right, let's dive into some on set life. Sounds like it sounds like it was a great time, especially now everybody's coming back together for these anniversary interviews. They all seem very close, um, but it ran over schedule and over budget. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> Crow, Crow says at some point he realized he was over schedule and over budget and he hadn't heard a word from DreamWorks. And he was like, <laughs> OK, I'm not going to bring it up. We're just going to keep working. Uh, but a little bit more than halfway through the shoot, someone came out and started keeping an eye on set. And he said, uh, even though Spielberg had told him to direct every word of the script, he said it at a certain point, the message became maybe direct every other word of the script. (laughs) Uh, Crow encouraged improv during the production, leading to some of the most famous lines like William and Penny's, I need to go home. And she does the little poof. You are home. Uh, during the Tyner Dancer sequence that was improv on on the spot. Uh, He says he was most excited to let Fugit ad-lib on set because like William, Patrick was growing up and falling in love with music and his castmates right in front of the camera. He said he thinks Patrick was a little bit in love with with Kate Hudson. uh, Oh, no no doubt. Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? Yeah, exactly. Who wouldn't be? (laughs) Um, Crow's not known for an absurd amount of takes like some of his contemporaries. Uh, The cast does recount two sequences that took entirely too long to film. The Tiny Dancer sequence took over two days to shoot uh, due to some issues with a rig where they were attaching the camera to the ceiling of the tour van so that it could um, go up and down the aisles. Uh, Cast member Noah Taylor eventually confronted Crow, telling him he hated Tiny Dancer already and he refused to sing it anymore after hearing it for two days straight. Um, The sequence on the plane also went over schedule for multiple days because, believe it or not, Jimmy Fallon kept cracking up during the the shoot. No, can you, believe, can you, you can't tell that? me that. You can't tell me the Fallon. Fallon Fallon never cracks up. Fallon cracking? I can't believe that. <laughs> but he does. I didn't mention Fallon, but he does have a great line of the like, I killed a guy in Dearborn, Michigan. I was I just, driving. I didn't stop. I didn't stop. I don't know if he's dead or alive. I give him that. That's a great. That's a hard thing to deliver, and he does it well. He does that little like wheel jerk yeah. movement while he when he says hit him. Some of the more interesting stuff with the production of this film is actually involved in the post production. Um, it sounds like after giving him free range for much of the shoot, the studio has started putting their foot down when it came to yeah, post. Uh, Crow's Crow had originally intended to call the film Untitled as a reference to it being his his fourth feature film and led zeppelin's fourth record was was untitled untitled yeah the studio told him they absolutely would not market a film called untitled 
to which he then uh, decided to name the film The Uncool, which they also said was not marketable. So Almost Famous wow. um, almost famous came after that. He said Almost Famous was a term he used to think of when he saw the people who stood on the side of a stage at a band, and he would wonder, like, who were who those people there? They're, they're Almost Famous. Oh, that's, that's, that's okay. Okay. The production cost ballooned in post-production when Crow's proposed soundtrack of over 50 classic rock songs yeah. ended up costing almost $4 million. Yeah, which is, which, like, I think I read, I don't know what the, like, I feel like the, the, the max that they did for, like, a soundtrack thing, which was, like, very high, was, like, $2 million at yeah. that point, and he doubled yeah, so, that. And so double what anybody else yeah. had. Yeah, yeah. Um, Many of these songs had never been permitted for use in films before by these bands because, you know, a lot of them were kind of still yeah. anti-establishment, you know, yeah. rock bands. Zeppelin uh, specifically. That's that's the, yeah. Zeppelin yeah, was the well, I got one. a story on that for sure. Yeah, there's um, one big song I know about with the Zeppelin one. But so Crow called in a lot of favors to his old yeah. rock star pals and got a lot of like permission in person to use some of those songs. But yeah, Crow's director's cut was famously long, clocking in at almost three hours. 10 minutes were cut immediately when Led Zeppelin refused to let the film use Stairway to Heaven for a scene that Crow had filmed where William's teacher and guidance counselor convinced his mom to let him go on tour with Stillwater by playing her the entirety of Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, it's the thing is that one's not even in the official like bootleg Mm, cut. No, because they they still didn't have permission to use it it. in the bootleg either. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, if you go to the Blu-ray or whatever, it's like a deleted scene, it goes... Okay, put on Stairway to Heaven now. Like it gives you like a ticker, I think, of like when mm-hmm. to put on Stairway to Heaven. So you're listening to Stairway to Heaven as you're watching the scene and watching yeah. McDormand react to it. Uh, Crow had originally planned to use five Zeppelin songs in the film. He had a screening for Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to show them the movie and ask for permission. Um, Crow was especially nervous because he had taken some inspiration for Russell from Robert Plant, including directly quoting him in the I Am a Golden God sequence. Um, Crow recounts sitting in the back of the screening room, panicking about what he was going to do, how he was going to replace five songs off the soundtrack if Zeppelin hated the film. Yeah. And when they reached the Golden God scene, um, Plant just cracked up. <laughs> he loved it. And um, later in the later in the movie, when Rolling Stone calls Russell and and he says, uh, or Jeff says, Russell, they've got you on uh, record saying I am a Golden God, and Russell goes, I never said that. Uh, he said plants stood up and yelled out, but I did. <laughs> um, after the screening, the band informed Crow that they loved the movie, but they had a strict policy of not allowing stairway to be used in any movie. Yeah. They gave him blessing to use the four other songs, but they told him, sorry, no stairway. And so that scene, uh, was cut, which brought the, uh, brought the director's cut down to two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. Uh, the studio made him whittle another 45 minutes off of that to the two hour theatrical cut. Um, but he did release the director's cut called untitled, which includes everything except for the stairway scene, but the distribution company still refused to distribute it as untitled and distributed it as almost famous. The bootleg, cut. the bootleg cut. Yeah. <laughs> the title within the film says untitled, but they it still does. said there's no way we can make a DVD cover that says untitled on the front. <laughs> So on to Aftermath, uh, the film was released and it debuted to huge critical praise. It was almost immediately loved by the critics. Um, uh, praise for the new stars, Hudson, Fugit, and Crudup. Roger Ebert 
Roger Ebert gave the film four stars and he opened his review with, oh, what a lovely film. Yeah, he did. It's, yeah. A, it's such a happy review. I think he He's said like, he was hugging himself through the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, through the whole thing. Yeah, he loved it. Someone who didn't love it, not Pauline Kael. She passed away a year later, but I can't find on record that she saw this or at yeah. least she didn't write about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. another very famous critic, Andrew yeah. Saris, yeah. disagreed. He called it Crow's worst outing of any of his films and blamed just... it on partly bad chemistry and partly relentless facetiousness. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he hated the music, I think, because he kind of says yeah. like, he goes, oh, I know the Beatles. That's yeah. like kind of what he says. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I stopped listening to rock after the Beatles, but but um he was also he he found it insincere because it didn't touch on darkness, drugs and the excess and the vulgarity yeah. that rock was famous for at that time. Which, yeah. you know, was Crow's goal. Crow Crow didn't want to show that. So Yeah. again, the Andrew Sears thing and I and I because uh, Andrew Sears, for those that don't know, is very big in the whole auteur theory. That was kind of his big thing the he, the american version Truffaut and the people over in france with the uh, kaidu cinema were the big ones that did it but sarah's was kind of the first one that really kind of brought it over to america in a way so he he is a a influential critic for sure but i think that kind of comes in with what i was saying about rolling stone earlier of the whole like oh we like this music the old the old guard we don't want these like new long-haired like kids coming in here like who is this Led Zeppelin? It feels kind of it reads similar where he's just like, yeah, I like this music, but not this music. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you don't like this music, you're just not gonna like the movie. It's kind of <laughs> how, how I view it. Um, so yeah, and I, he's he's also like criticizing like the young kids that are like that were watching it with him. He was just like they weren't in the '70s. They don't know this stuff. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting review for sure. But, it is. Uh, I, I I always try to look for a bad one for all the movies that we do, and I when Andrew Saris's name popped up, I was like, "Oh man, all right, yeah. let's see what he had to say." Yeah, it, it was. I think it was like him, and then someone else in the Washington Post. I think gave it a bad review. I love that they, they say uh, it's very hard to see these long. This is the Washington Post review. It's very hard to see these long-haired kids as props of the 1970s instead of dressed-up actors from the Seattle Starbucks era. But despite those two reviews, it got overwhelmingly good press. Uh, but suffered at the box office. Uh, not sure, unsure if it was the lack of stars or lack of interest in a rock movie. Crow notes that his movie about 1973 was killed by an actual movie from 1973, as The Exorcist was re-released in theaters the same weekend and beat Almost Famous at the box office. Oh no! Wow, the irony in that. Um, and despite a Golden Globe win for Kate Hudson, an Oscar for Crow's script, and Oscar nominations for Hudson and McDormand, the film ultimately made $43 million on its $60 million budget, compared to uh, $273 million on a $50 million budget for Jerry Maguire a few years earlier. Whew. Yeah, that's a big so difference. Definitely not what DreamWorks was hoping for, I'm sure. Yeah, and and the, but the thing is, they does Vanilla Sky, which better? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> um, but as many underperforming but well-reviewed films tend to do, Almost Famous has endured and continued to gain praise and love in the twenty years since its release. Um, I think it's you know I think at this point it's become a, a movie that almost everyone knows. And uh, if you need any proof of its popularity now, Elton John credits the movie for popularizing Tiny Dancer. 
he said it was not regarded as one of his top hits until uh the movie came out and he said now he can't do a concert without playing tiny dancer or there would be a revolt <laughs> so we've touched on a lot of this brandon but what what works in this movie oh god i mean i uh, uh disagreeing with andrews andrew saris here but i think the cast is great and their chemistry is great yeah. um like i just i think that all works um like I, said, I think it's an incredible sign of good casting when you can say i'm gonna cast I don't want stars. I want young people. And like all of them become big. And they all become stars. Yeah. yeah I ex- think that's, ex- that's, ex- yeah. That's Except, huge. Like Fugit doesn't become big, but like he has a career. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. I mean, he's kind of the, like, uh, may not. I'm sorry. Do you, you think Bigford Schmeckler is not huge? What is that? You've never seen wow okay someone wasn't watching comedy central in the in the late 2000s bigford schmeckler's cool ideas was this like comedy that they would show every day almost i felt like really? it was just always playing i i mean i watched comedy central but i didn't watch this wow olivia wilde was in this movie and matthew lillard and john cho john cho what a cast okay i guess should i go watch this thomas is this what you're telling me to go I, watch? I don't remember i can't i can't remember <laughs> Like it's like he reminds he's kind of like I mean like I I think he's had a beer career but he reminds me of like Roy Cochran in Days and Confused like he's has mm-hmm. a career but he doesn't become like the star of the group that was yeah. in the cast yeah. of of uh, Days and Confused yeah um, true but yeah but like, like but not even just that but like even these like the the cameos it's like uh, Jay Baratrill like he mm-hmm. pops up. Um, I think uh, uh, one of my favorites is just so odd that didn't become relevant until much later was like Eric Stone Street from mm-hmm. Modern Family is the guy who works at the uh, hotel. Who's some other ones? I mean, Fallon. I think, I mean, Jimmy Fallon. Who would have thought? That guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's the next Johnny Carson right there. And he, I mean, he had like a little bit of a, a film career, like with like uh, um taxi and fever pitch which i like fever pitch uh but yeah he he it's it's fun kind of seeing found this like small role where he's mm-hmm. and again the kind of the meta the meta line is the like you think rolling stone's gonna be out there kicking it at 50 no and you're like <laughs> well they are they're still going uh but what worked i mean the music choices i i think i think i think it's crow's best film personally i think yeah. it's some of his best writing i think it's 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 the leveler i think crow um has, has his reputation has dwindled a little bit in the past few years because of movies like aloha and the reevaluation of something like jerry Maguire. um and even i mean i'm i'm not this might out me with people but i'm not a huge say anything fan but yeah he's i think almost famous is kind of that one where like no matter what the reevaluation is of his other films, that one I think still continues to hold up mm-hmm. as time has gone on. I think, I think Crow's someone who obviously making films that are kind of warm yeah. and, and like a hug yeah, you like a hug. Is, 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 is a goal for him. And, and it doesn't always work like something like Aloha. It's just like, ah, there's too much going on. Like I don't, it's you know it doesn't this doesn't need this is way overly saccharine and and it works you know i like we bought a zoo sue me <laughs> sue me do, do we, 
very pleasant it's a very pleasant film so here's the thing and going off that i mean just if you're gonna if you're gonna commit to the weeball zoo take i i i like elizabeth town kind of and i need, not to, I need to revisit elizabeth town because i i have read several people who kind of position elizabeth town as his billy wilder tribute and so i feel like i need yeah to watch that's a it good point with- i th- I think Orlando Bloom is kind of miscast and and the role Mm. is kind of my big thing. But it's again, it's like one of those comfort movies. I do find myself coming back and watching. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think I would also like, cause Ebert also really liked that movie. And that's one I, I, there is a longer cut of as well, but it's never been released to my knowledge. Mm. But there's something to that movie that I think is, it, it deserves a little bit of, of recognition for but i i think crow is someone who's very talented obviously in a lot of aspects as a writer mm-hmm. as a the journalist and and i think this movie is just you know every every once in a while someone just hits on something that's incredibly personal yeah. and that they're able to communicate that personal experience extremely well it yeah. doesn't always happen like that sometimes you, a director will come out and be like this film is my most personal film yet and it comes out and you're like ah like they just weren't able to to bring out those feelings in the best way you know yeah it's like do i even like you now are you a good person (laughs) but i think everything just all of crow's talents and all of crow's life experience and all of crow's passions all aligned for this movie specifically i i agree i think that's why it continues to kind of really hold up is because it's it's it feels like the most personal of the bunch Mm -hmm. um of all his films so that's what worked what didn't work i didn't have anything maybe i'm just biased um i was i was waiting for you to say something um i'll tell you i'll tell you one you give me me, what he was going for but the scene that always i'm like i I wish he had done something differently i i don't know the scene when he he kisses her and uh, yes the 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 way that he plays the entire overdose scene does not yeah i i I agree that's that's when when you were about to say the scene that I get what he's doing, I was like, oh, it's the overdose scene because that's the, the one the, it the, does. I mean, taking a dig at her when he's like, I'm going to go where where many men have many gone men before. Have gone like, before. It's, 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 like, yeah, don't it's kind make of a, a joke about her being a slut right now. And then also like, I mean, also like, I, I get the like, it's the kissing her because it's kind of the coming of age thing. If he's like dreamed about her and now he has it, but it is kind of a a, a, a creepy, a creepy yeah, thing and to I, do. And I, and I I think I get that he's that he is kind of trying to do a parody of the male gaze in in showing yeah. him like stare at her while she's having her stomach pumped but that the, the, <laughs> yeah, that, that it, might be my, the one my, needle drop that my, does my Sharia Moore, yeah, yeah. The St- stevie wonder yeah i agree it, it's it that one feels a little too over the top with what it's mm-hmm. doing of the yeah her being, especially her, after a suicide attempt it's just yeah like, okay. her stomach's being pumped and we're and we're listening to my Sharia Moore as yeah. that's happening that's that is the only misfire i feel like in in this movie that's fair that's fair i i don't disagree because i it's it's one again it's i'm happy you bring it up because that's one that's like it bumps me but it's almost like oh but they did just play mona lisa mad hatter so i kind of like that part yeah i love uh, i love the scene i love the scene right before it at yeah. um what kansas city you know, very famous club i can't remember the name of it right now oh or, or where they're at or they're at when he runs yeah. out yeah, yeah, I love that yeah. scene. Obviously, we love the scene afterwards when they're in Central Park. So yeah. 
it's it's one that is it you can easily gloss over it but every time i watch it's one of those i like forget about until i watch the movie again i'm like oh yeah I, I, it's I one of those like I, t- I turn I, I go do something else like like send an email as that's playing <laughs> yeah yeah we've got some alternate universe cast there's you're more ready to, you're ready to hear it yeah oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah um <laughs> So after Brad Pitt backed out and Crow decided he wanted some some younger up and coming lesser names, uh, the final call for Russell was between Billy Crudup and Christian Bale. Oh wow, that's interesting. I can see it. I don't I know. I, Crudup and Bale kind of have similar energies sometimes. Yeah, I think Bale can be a little more intense than Crudup. I would have liked to have seen Bale at this point in his career do a movie like this where he's just playing kind of a normal guy. You know? Yeah, because this is coming. Uh, when's American Psycho? Another guy just been hopping around for years. American Psycho, same year. Mm. Does he? He does that in Shaft. Okay, <laughs> he's he's the main villain in Shaft. So yeah, that'd been interesting. So yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a world where he doesn't do American Psycho and he does Almost Famous instead. What career does Bell have after that? Would he have been in Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Um, last year, wasn't Billy Crudup in that? Billy Crudup is in that. Yes um uh joseph gordon levitt was a front runner for william for a while but uh i could see that crow decided that levitt who was 19 at the time didn't play as believably 16 yeah. yeah speaking of being believably 16 patrick fugit's voice broke while they were filming the movie <laughs> <laughs> um while crow at least initially got his dream cast in brad pitt and sarah polly he wrote the role of William's mother with Meryl Streep in mind. And it's not clear if Meryl Streep ever entertained the, the opportunity, but it did not happen. Obviously. It's, it's funny. That's, that's the case. Cause I literally thought today or when watching the movie, I was like, it's Francis McDormand becoming the next Meryl Streep of like how, like anything she does. And it may be more in line with Daniel Lewis, like anything she does, it, she doesn't Oscar come nominated. out much. It's Oscar nominated and possibly Oscar win. And when she comes out, she's amazing. Yeah, probably more in line with Daniel Lewis than because I think McDormand doesn't do as much in modern context as say Meryl Streep does because Meryl Streep's just like Mary Poppins Returns and <laughs> and Mommy Mommy Two, which she's not in there much, and other movies like that. So, I, but I did think like is is that because like because they're like about a decade behind each other. It feels like McDormand mm-hmm. and Streep, and I'm like, is she like kind of becoming that next wave of like anytime she does a movie, she's gonna be nominated. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Up for Lester Bangs were John Favreau and Jack Black. I could see both of them. I think Hoffman's better, but I can see in terms of the physical uh, comparison to, to to Lester Bangs, I get both those. Yeah, um, Hoffman refused to read for the role, but uh, damn, damn right. Instead, came in the room and went on a rant about a billboard he had seen on his way into the audition featuring Martin Scorsese endorsing American Express. And he just ranted oh, on it for 10 it was, minutes. Oh, it was when those commercials were happening. He yeah. ranted on it like Lester would rant on rock music. And they said, all right, this is him. He's got the part. <laughs> uh, it sounds like literally everyone in Hollywood auditioned for Penny Lane. I literally would not have time to list all of them. But here's just some of them. Here's a random smattering. Brittany Murphy, Neve Campbell, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Lara Flynn Boyle, Allison Hannigan, Katherine Heigl, Natalie Portman, Jennifer Connelly, Kelly McDonald, Gwyneth Paltrow, Rachel Weiss, Liv Tyler, Laura Prepon, on and on and on and on and on. Wow. This was, I mean, I mean, think about it, you know, it was, it was 
post uh jerry Maguire, i feel like everyone everyone's everyone, agent was like yeah. you need to get in the room with cameron crowe right now it's it's like cuba gang jr just i mean it's like an oscar not or win for 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 gooding and then multiple oscar wins or like nominations for jerry Maguire. granted i'm not going to discredit crow with this but like he had tom cruise in the movie um yeah. that was a big a big influx in terms of box office because again you look at vanilla sky a year later after this it's like it, he shoots from almost famous which is 43 million as you said and i think like vanilla sky is like 200 million box office so there is that cruise factor that's there yeah. um, um, who, who, who do you think would have been who do you think would have been a good replacement if, if kate hudson doesn't do it who do you go with i feel like late 90s early 2000s gwyneth could have done this i'm not a i'm Maybe. not necessarily a i'm not a big Paltrow late 2000s fan. gwyneth fan yeah, but, yeah. later stuff yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe Pitt and Paltrow because they they were I think dating around that time. Liv Tyler, I definitely think Liv Tyler. Liv Tyler is kind of who I thought, and that's and maybe because I've seen her do not similar roles, but like she's in that thing you do. She's in Empire Records, um, where she's playing this like musical muse in some way or muse. But she for people. she can also do the kind of kind of like dreamy like trance like energy yeah. of of uh. It's all Penny. happening. <laughs> yeah 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 i i i my my ears I, I perked up a little bit when you said rachel vice but i don't know if she would work i in this role maybe i just i i love her as an actress mm-hmm. um i i almost wonder if she was a little too i'm trying if she was a little too old because like, cause like Kate Hudson's like 21 or 20 mm-hmm. when she makes this movie. Because like some of those names you mentioned, I'm like, they're a little old. Uh, last alternate universe cast, Neil Young was set to play Russell's father in a scene. You would have hated that. <laughs> <laughs> you would have hated that, Thomas. Um, they had a scene where he was going to visit Russell backstage right after the t-shirt incident. Um, but they're Young sing, backed up. They're going to sing together. They're going to sing together, right, Thomas? No, he was not going to sing. <laughs> um, but Young backed out the morning of. Mm. he uh he had already fit, been fitted for his costume and everything but mm. um as an as an apology he gave crow his pick of his song catalog to use in the film and he even remastered an acoustic version of cortez the killer for okay. crow to use in the film and it's it's a good song that they use in the film all right some film facts there's a yeah. lot of them there's, I've, I've combed all of the the 20 year <laughs> um, interviews Damn. to find what yeah. i can uh cameron crowe's mother had a cameo in the film in the cut stairway to heaven scene in which she played williams principal um he very intensely tried to keep her and francis mcdormand separate offset when they leading up to that scene because he didn't want francis mcdormand's performance to be influenced by meeting his mother Um, but he said he had to leave set for 10 minutes and when he came back they were both gone and he asked where they were and he was told that mcdormand had taken his mother out to lunch oh god (laughs) that that feels like such a francis francis move you know i feel like mm-hmm. francis she'd do that after the film came out crow asked his mother what she thought of the portrayal of her <laughs> in the film and she said she liked all of it except for um uh, there are a few shots when francis was, francis mcdormand was walking around barefoot and she said i would not walk around barefoot <laughs> said, mom i basically made you the villain of the movie and your problem is the, the your, barefoot the bare feet Crow's been very open over the years about where the influences for Stillwater came from. Obviously, the yeah. I Am the Golden God scene came from a scene that he witnessed with Robert Plant at a hotel pool. The incident with the plane turbulence actually happened to Crow twice, once with the Who and once with Hart. Uh, 
a lot of the animosity between Russell and William comes from Crow's rocky relationship with Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers Band, who mm-hmm. once stole all of Crow's uh, interview tapes so that he couldn't them, couldn't hand them over to Rolling Stones fact checkers. Yeah, that that actually, from my understanding, it was written as a plot point for the almost famous uh, musical. Is that oh. uh, Stillwater ends up taking the tapes and. Uh, Russell gives them back at the end when he comes back. I think. I think also too to go with the, the to show you, you. You said that it was uh the pool scene was was uh Robert Plant, but I've also heard the almond burst that that happened to them as well. <laughs> well, and the, the, Dwayne, it, the that was a quote. Did it. The um the quote you mentioned earlier when Russell has the outburst and he yells at yeah. that um he yells at William and says, you know, you're taking what notes you? with your eyes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that was, that was a quote from, from Greg Allman. Yeah. Uh, but Crow actually says his biggest influence for Russell. Do you, have you heard this one? Even bigger know. than Greg Allman? No. I think he so. said, his, his, he said his main overall influence for, for kind of building out Russell's look and Russell's demeanor was uh, Glenn Fry of the Eagles. No, I did not know that. Yeah, and Crow cast him in a small part in Jerry Maguire. Um, yeah, and the uh, the just make us look cool line came from uh, Glenn Fry. I know that. Yeah, in an earlier draft of the script, which was titled Ricky Fedora, the William character was assigned to follow a rising British glam rock act named Ricky Fedora, modeled off of David Bowie. Bowie, yeah who Crow was very close with. Crow had written a role for Bowie as Fedora's suave manager, but when scheduling didn't work out. Uh, Crow decided to write it about a, an American band from the Heartlands instead. Uh, Crow said he continued to write parts in movies with David Bowie in mind until the day Bowie died. Wow. Interesting. They never got to work together. Who who would Bowie have been in Aloha is my question. <laughs> the Bill, honestly, the Bill Murray, Bill Murray. character. Maybe I think the Bill Murray clear things too. up a little bit more because yeah. the energy in that role yeah, is I, so weird. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I'm like thinking of all the other movies of like, I mean, like, like, who was he supposed? Was he Jay Moore in a uh, Jay McGuire? Was that who David Bowie was supposed to be? <laughs> uh, do you have any story questions? I have a couple. Okay. I know she's like traveling, but she's moving somewhere else. Do you think she would honestly leave all of those records there, like all of oh, them? Oh, Anita. Anita, yes. Because they're I'm heavy. Like, As someone who has had to move a record collection a few times now, they're heavy. I mean, they're heavy, but come on, man. Do you see what's in that collection? I know probably it didn't mean that much the moment. Like, it's like, oh, I'll just get another one or something. Yeah. But like, yeah, they I were also a now. lot cheaper back then. So that's true. Yeah, yeah. I look at that now. I'm just like, oh god. Like, you got you got Hendrix. You got you got Simon Garfunkel. You got Zeppelin. Like Led Zeppelin two. Like just is and just like just like pristine condition. <laughs> and the, and did she also did she write a note in every single one? Was my other question that I was thinking. Oh, she writes know. a note. Tommy just she, the special. One. Tommy the That's only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one question I had. Uh, how long do you think Stillwater lasts? Crow Crow had an answer for this. Um, oh, did he really? I, I can't I can't remember exactly. I I know that that Jeff is the one who left and started like the Jeff BB band for sure. Yeah, the Jeff BB experience. I can I see. I think he said, I think he said Russell ended up joining up with another, an existing band. He, cause I, he, he said that he thought Russell's career would mirror, um, the guy from the Eagles that was in James gang and, uh, Joe Walsh. I know he said yeah. in, in his yeah. mind, he always thought Russell's career was, was Joe Walsh's career. Yeah. Um, 
And then somebody asked him, this was an interview that was during COVID. They, somebody asked him if they thought they got back together on zoom, uh, <laughs> during the COVID times. So he said, yeah, I think at this point they'd be, they'd be okay with it. Well, see, here's my question. Cause I, I was looking at like the bands of this era. And so my first question popped out. I was like, which of the band members, this is going to be dark dies first, mm. because I feel like if you look at every band's of this era there's always like one guy mm-hmm. who like dies of like a drug overdose like if it's like keith moon and the who um was it Bron- who was it in the rolling stones because the stones had someone as well eagles eagles made it a long time so may yeah but like but like Dwayne almond with the almond brothers um was it brian jones who was the one yeah brian jones and the stones mm-hmm. um uh zeppelin it's it's um john bonham John Zeppelin. Bonham, thank you. Yeah, yeah. but like, like, there's always like that one person that dies of something because mm-hmm. like, like except like, like Aerosmith, I think they all stayed alive because it's a lot of live fast, die, uh, live fast, die young. So there's always that one person who, like brings everyone down to earth. So I'm like, who is that guy? Who is that guy <laughs> that goes first? The drummer. I had the drummer I don't even know too. His name. Uh, my last question, uh, which you might be able to comment on this because there's one person you haven't really talked about of the real life uh a counterpart counterpart uh what happens to penny lane uh yeah yeah yeah. there was a real life penny penny trumbull that was Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of cameron crow's um i think she's i think she becomes a a a character so in some town she moves into some hippie town and um, is just someone that years later everyone's like you you know penny lane used to go on tour with stillwater like yeah can can i read you what (laughs) what her wikipedia page says because she has a wikipedia page yeah uh lived in san diego for many years she obtained a bachelor's degree in business administration from cal state northridge where she was a competitive fencer <laughs> uh and got an mba in marketing from uh aliens international university in 1988 she owned her own marketing firm uh upon her divorce her divorce in the early 1990s she moved back closer to her parents she bought property in suave island oregon and built a ranch which she describes as rock and roll ranch. She now owns a wine label <laughs> and grows her own grapes, Pinot Noir grapes, uh, and still is involved in the Portland area music scene. She also became an ordained minister to officiate weddings at her ranch. Yeah. That's that what Penny Lane right. did. Yeah. I can, see, right. I can see Kate Hudson as Penny Lane doing all those things. Yeah. Well, speaking of Penny, this is one of my story questions. Okay. There's, there's been some backlash against this film in recent years by people who think that Penny is portrayed as 16 in this movie. Yeah. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think I, she I, is. I, I, I mean, I've watched that scene many times. Okay. So there's a scene in question when Penny is trying yeah. to get William's real name or real age. She says, how old are you? He says 19. She says me too. Yeah. He says, I'm actually 18. She says me too. He says, I'm 17. She says, me too. And then he says, I'm 16. And she goes, me too. And so there, there's a like a, a faction of people who are reading that literally and yeah. are like, Penny 16, and, and this is and Russell is a pedophile. I don't I don't know. I don't read that. I every time I've watched that scene and I, and I came back to it after I kind of heard this. Yeah. After I heard this criticism of the film, I came back to that scene and it Hudson, I feel like Hudson is playing it like she's just teasing him. Yes, that's how I read it too. And like every time she says me too, it's because she knows that he's lying. 
And it's like, it would have just great just telling the truth. But then you're like, yeah. you're not telling the truth a lot of the time in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that's how I gathered it. But I do. I was like, someone's gonna misinterpret, could misinterpret this, and I, I don't know what Camp what Crow meant. If, if, because if, I, I agree. I think Hudson plays it as this kind of like, okay, tell me who you really are type thing, and she's trying to make him feel comfortable in the moment is how I felt. But and I mean, yes, the the ugly truth is there are a lot of underage girls as groupies. And yes, if you and this look era, into yes. it, a lot of rock, rock icons committed statutory rape and yes but i don't think i don't think crow i don't think that was the one when crow was like i'm gonna set out to make like a really nostalgic like nice look at, at rock music i don't think the one thing he was like but i am gonna call attention to the pedophilia and rock yeah. music like i don't because because then, then what makes it even worse is that like because she said because they they hung out the, the year before mm-hmm. and i'm like oh then she was like 15 but also it, it, here's my thing if he was so intensive like he was so set on making william like accurately 16 i don't like kate hudson was not 16 i don't think i don't think she's played like i don't think she is playing that character as 16 in any way i think she i think she's playing her age is what it feels like to me well let me here's the thing maybe this can sum this up a little bit when was penny trumbull born 1954 so she would be 19 which that, that, that it, feels that feels a lot closer. Yeah, Nineteen twenty eight is what yeah, she's if we're, if we're basing it off of who he based it off of, I think I could see the. I, I feel like it's 1920. 19 yeah. or twenty. I think that's. I, I think that's just a, a a faction of people who are reading that scene very literally. Look, and I, yeah, every time I, I every time I rewatch that scene now, I like I don't think that's what she's doing here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You ready for some awards? Yeah, I am. All right, so we've got a couple, got a couple new ones. We got the Paul the Paul Williams Music Award for favorite fictional song of the film. Yes. Uh so I have two. Okay. Cause there's one I mean, the big one is Fever Dog. Yeah. Fever Dog is a big one. I think this the, is when I think this is when you found out that I had yes. all the cut songs because you were Sounds like, like Man, I wish I could listen to them all. Because you, <laughs> you said something about Fever Dog being the best song on this from Stillwater. And I was yeah. like, No. I think, I think it's love, love comes, comes, and comes and goes. Goes that's that and was the other like, one. You were like, "How do you know? How how have you heard all of Love Comes and Goes?" And I was like, "Oh, I have it." <laughs> yeah, because like there is some of it. Like I watched it on YouTube. There is like stuff on YouTube of it too. And I listened to that, but I was just like, I, I can't just jam to Love Comes and Goes because like it's on YouTube. So I have to like, I don't. I'm cheap, so I don't like buy the premium, so I can turn off my my YouTube thing and listen to the music. So I just don't listen to it. Uh, I don't know what we're revealing here about the music that we now have with love comes and goes and almost famous. Uh, yeah, I love fever dog, but I think love comes and goes. I agree with you. Those are the two that I, I come back to a lot. Cause I just love the opening of love comes and goes mm-hmm. like the piano that he's, that Jeff Beebe's playing. And then it just comes into like, dun, dun, and then comes into the, to the, to the song. And it's got two, two Russell Hammond guitar solos. It does. In love comes. It and does. Goes. So are we going with love comes and goes? That's what it sounds I think like. So. I love that song. Yeah. I did I did put Fever Dog though in my in the digital yearbook I did in high school that I edited. I was like, I'm gonna throw in Fever Dog for one, Fever, for one it's of these tracks. Incendiary. Love comes and goes. Paul Williams Music Award. Bam. All right. The Matt Damon Cameo Award, but I have to we're we're gonna we have to tweak it. Break it up. The Matt we're gonna have the Matt Damon Cameo Award, but we're also gonna have the almost famous not quite there yet award which is who someone who appeared in almost famous who wasn't famous yet but is now 
Oh man, well that's tough. Okay, hold on. We don't me... have to do the Matt Damon cameo award, but but I do want because a lot of stuff I was thinking a lot, about. A it. lot, a lot of them all all like were like didn't be like became famous later. So you did you brought up Jay Baruchel, Eric Stone Street, yeah. also uh, the Rain, Sandler, Rain Wilson, yes, Rain who, Wilson, who? Rain Wilson, Sandler collaborator Nick Swartzen, Nick very Swartzen, briefly. Bowie, it's yeah. Bowie. I mean, Mark um, Maron. Mark Maron is another one. Yeah, that's very yeah, brief. Mark very Maron brief, appearance. and that's on his. That's on his podcast. Yeah, close Lock the, the gates. gates. <laughs> Lock the gates. You want to buy yourself a gate? You want to buy yourself, You want to buy a gate, guys? I mean, you got like you got Anna Paquin also in here, which is not a cameo, but just like it feels kind of like a cameo. Yeah, that's what I was. I was because she's like I, an Oscar winner. Like, like yeah, Anna Paquin's there. Faruza Box already done the craft at this point. Like yes. Mm. And yeah, Mitch Hedberg, by the way, in there too. He's, I think, at the yeah, poker game. Yeah, he's at yeah. the poker game. Because I always kind of remember him from some for some strange reason. I'm gonna say Rain Wilson for me hmm. for cam- for almost famous cameo. I would say Matt da- Ma- Matt Damon cameo. I'd go Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, if we're gonna yeah, count I that, so. I think I think he gets the. I because he's already he's on SNL at that time. I think he gets the cameo. I, I'd say Rain Wilson. My pick is Jay Baruchel. He's so much fun. <laughs> he, is, I mean, he is the big Zeppelin guy, so that's and, fine. Uh, and it's like a year before Undeclared. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's just great when they run into him in the hallway, and he's just like listing off like the, the guys are all here. Uh, uh, I got uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Plant, uh, Robert, Jimmy Plant, Robert Robert my shirt, and yeah. they're just like not listening. Like no one's listening to him. <laughs> he's just so excited. It's like he, he's with Led. He tours with Led Zeppelin, but not like yeah. with Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh rain wilson was well, to him is that rain wilson has such these like weird movements in the mm-hmm. scene that he does like with the cigarette it's just like like when he like, like when, when when ben fong torres is like talking to to uh to william and rain wilson's just like like he can't hear the phone conversation but it sounds like he can hear the phone conversation does that make sense he's reacting like he's actually hearing the phone conversation terry chin yeah Terry Chin. He's, he's, he's really fun in this. He's got the. He's got the. You were talking about the Hunter S. Thompson line when he's like, "Listen here, man. man. Get it we together. already got one Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> it's, and like, they've never met him. They're just like they trust this guy with all with all the Rolling Stone yeah. budget. They didn't have Zoom back then. Um, <laughs> this movie never would have worked if Zoom existed. Okay, so we're split on that one. I'm going Jay Baruchel. You're going, I'll go go Jay Baruchel. I'll go Jay Baruchel. Cause I, I, I I like the Led Zeppelin, but he he's in there. He, I think he has like, I remember him a lot more, but Rain Wilson just has those odd movements. that I'm just like, what is going, what is he doing here? Mm -hmm. I can't look away. All right. I'm pretty sure I know how the awards are going to play out, but let's go. All right. BH is straight limited scenes. Do we count Philip Seymour Hoffman in this category? Yes, I think I count then, Philip yes. Seymour Hoffman. Then. then Philip Seymour Hoffman and Beatrice Oh, I, 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 I don't know how I missed this one in my trivia. Philip Seymour Hoffman shot over four days, and he had the flu the entire time. Wow. Great actor, man. Great actor. Um, yeah. yeah. Philip, Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I just think, some of the best lines in the movie. Yeah. It's the, you'll meet them on the long journey to the middle that he says when he's like, he goes, you must be like, everyone's love you at your school. They hate me. Well, You'll meet them. You'll meet them on the long journey to the middle. Um, and I love then, his, uh, the the one he gives like Ben. He's like, oh, who is who's who? Who, yeah, who ben, are you working ben, for yeah. over there, Ben Funk Torres? Give him this. <laughs> yeah. It's a working piece. <laughs> it's a work. It's a working piece about a band trying to make big. And like, yeah, he'll love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I just love again. Also, just like the, the kind of like ran things. He's like, sometimes I just write. I take a little speed <laughs> and I write like twenty five pages of dribble just to right <laughs> like, 
Oh man, you you made friends with them. So for our Annie Potts X Factor Award, the supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. Okay, so here, so uh, who are we counting here? Because does Kate Hudson fall into this category? I think so. Okay, I think because she's nominated for supporting actress. Yeah, I think anybody other than 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 Future Patrick, is supporting. I, yeah, this. I think for me, I think it's Kate Hudson. I agree. I think Billy Crudup absolutely kills it. I don't want to overshadow how great Billy Crudup is in this role, but it's it is Kate Hudson. She owns this movie. Yeah, when I think this movie, and and I almost wonder like, does she get MVP award as well? But I, when I think this movie, I think Kate Hudson. I yep. think Kate Hudson, like dancing in the empty like arena after they performed or whatever, like mm-hmm. with the, like with the the streamers, the streamers she's playing with and all that. I just think of the like those moments with her. Oh, you know what? While I'm thinking about Kate Hudson, I just thought about another Kate Hudson scene. I really like when he puts Penny on the on the plane. Got a shout out. We talked about Nancy Wilson and writing some great songs for Stillwater, but the score, which she also did for this movie. Yeah. I really like the score. There's yeah. wall-to-wall classic rock in here, but every once in a while you just get this like kind of like acoustic yeah. guitar and piano score, and it's, it's really yeah. nice. Yeah, I, I, I think of just like the shot of, of, yeah, of him watching her leave on the plane, and mm-hmm. she has like the hand up to the window. Also, like she mouths the the uh the fly attendant instructions because mm-hmm. that's kind of her bit when she goes to parties ladies and gentlemen uh yeah and, and she's mouthing it after like while she's by herself she's she has these great just like kind of solo moments if that mm-hmm. makes sense and i don't know if anyone else has that in this film the mp the mvp award which you can bring kate hudson back up for this oh man could i because i might do it the person who carries the movie because I, I, it's like I kind of want to say Cameron Crowe, but I just also really want to give it to Kate Hudson. I just see. Kinda... I, I, I think it's Cameron Crowe. That's fine. Because like this is like I honestly I know outside of making a movie like this is an autobiography. Like you're I right, but we've never had a two time winner. <laughs> it's 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 really incredible that he was able to condense that's all fair. of his experiences into this. So, you into know, one movie. it's it's yeah, almost more he did it for a while. It's almost more impressive than an autobiography. It's 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 a really interesting form of autobiography is to take like everything that you experienced in your teenage years, yeah, working for Rolling Stone, and somehow take all of it, condensing and pack it into, it into a two hour yeah. or two hour and forty minute, depending on what cut you're talking about. <laughs> uh, film. I I I don't disagree with you. I just really I I I wanted to flirt with the idea of Kate Hudson <laughs> being a two time in one show. We've never had it. We've never had it. Yeah, I cr- crow. I think has to again. It's very much like his vision. Mm-hmm. Like we talked, we you and I talked about like the like debuts of people and how it's like purely like raw, unadulterated uh, like version of themselves. And this like honestly kind of feels like a debut, even though it's not. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like it has yeah. a feeling of like this is my personal story. I think it's because this is the movie he kind of has become most known for. I feel like in the modern context. It feels like a debut and you don't realize like, oh, yeah, he's been like he he made three other movies and wrote I mean wrote Fast Times before that. But, yeah, I think that this this fee, if you think of all like Cameron Crowe movies, it's like he always has the needle drops. And this is the first time where it kind of feels like it it's fully engrossed in the story, if that makes sense. Maybe singles because singles is like in that kind of era of music. Um, 
but I think this one specifically, it just it's it ties up like it's very much a memory. Again, yeah. I go back to that scene, the 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 Kate Hudson Russell or or uh, uh, Billy Crudup scene of when Joni Mitchell's River plays. It's like that's kind of that moment that he how he uses that music cue sums up what he's trying to do with that movie is to bring this memory back. If you were alive during this time is to bring you kind of back to this era of music of this time and the, and not the dark side, the light side of like why you fell in love with the music. Final questions. Okay, here we go. If this was made in 1973, who would you cast? Okay. Yeah. You you were, you were very specific. (laughs) Give me Russell William and penny oh i got more baby i got oh, okay okay i got i got i went full on like all right let's got, hear it i got penny i got william i got russell i got elaine which is the mom jeff Beebe, and lester i got okay. i got six people ready to all go right, i like you, it let's go who do you want first i went full on with this one uh give me william okay william okay a little bit hard to find a teen actor in the 70s i gotta be real it was yeah, very yeah. difficult because let me think so uh, so there's one joke pick and one legitimate pick. Okay. The joke pick is Peter Ostrom, who's Charlie from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate okay, Factory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he only did that movie, but I'm like, comes out like that's around the same time. Uh, the more realistic one, Robbie Benson. Oh, okay. Who people now know as like he's he's the beast and being the beast, he's the <laughs> voice in that. But he like he just came at 73, he comes out in the movie and he gets like golden globe newcomer of the year mm-hmm. he does a few movies like uh one-on-one this basketball film where he plays a basketball college star and then he did a ode to billy joe this like southern kind of based on the song by uh uh bobby gentry so he's kind of he's a teenager in that era it was kind of kind of became a little bit of a teen heartthrob for a bit but he kind of has the the william vibe kind of yeah. the dark dark kind of bowl cut uh kind of a little nerdy can be kind of shy I think Robbie Benson for William. Yeah, I like that. That's a good call. Uh, all right, give me Elaine. Ellen Burstyn. Perfect. That's who I have for Elaine. Uh, nailed that. Uh, <laughs> okay, Russell. Okay. I'm a, so I'm going to do Russell and Jeff Beebe because I have two versions of here. I have the musical version and mm. I have the actor version. Okay. The musical version of Russell, we might have to flip-flop this with Beebe, but the musical version of Russell chris christopherson yeah i can see that that's my musical version of russell my musical version of uh, musical version of jeff bb james taylor i I knew you were gonna put james taylor (laughs) yeah i think that's a i think that's a logical call for sure he was he was doing some acting he did just do two lane blacktop like two years before so he's doing a little bit he's actually really good in two lane blacktop that's the musical version the non-musical verse non-musical version as russell kurt russell you gotta you gotta at least try yeah and then jeff bb do you know how i'm going with this jeff bridges jeff bridges is who i have oh. for jeff bb <laughs> i like that i like that a lot too because i'm just I, thinking like i really like jeff as, as jeff bb yeah yeah i just i'm thinking of like the the band scene when they're fighting over the t-shirt yeah i could see jeff Let's bridges going out. Yeah, I can see Jeff Bridges going, and that you can print. Like I can see him saying that. Um, and Kurt Russell, I think, could kind of play the the like the softer side a little bit more at that age. And he he's still and he's not big yet. He's still doing the teen stuff, but he's of the like the Disney or he's kind of out of that because he takes a break. I think at this point, but I think he 
he could work. I think he could work as that. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear Bridges in that. Rock and roll could change the world, and the chicks are great. I great. sound like a buffoon. <laughs> All right, I got Lester and Penny Lane left. Okay, well, let's save Penny for last. Let's hear okay. Lester. John Belushi. Perfect. This is great. I'm loving this so far. Se- 73, he comes out national. He's not big yet. He's not. It's not SNL yet. That's 75. But he comes out with Nash Lampoon's L- Lemmings, which is a Broadway mm-hmm. show, and I think they taped it as well. But he's big on the comedy scene. And yeah. I look I look at Lester Bangs, I'm like, who is a guy who looks like this at this point and that could just like rant about music? I'm like, oh, it's Belushi. Yeah. It's Absolutely. totally Belushi. And I think Belushi could actually nail, maybe not to the same extent that Hoffman could, but like I think Belushi was a very good was a good actor that was was lumped into all those comedy roles and because he died so suddenly uh he could have had a much better career dramatically and i think he could have pulled off those like nice like soft phone call conversations with Mm -hmm. william yeah i like this so far bring it on home with penny let's hear it i got two people okay one it's a little bit of a cheat She's not big yet. She does another movie in 74 is what kind of breaks her out. And we've talked about on the show before. And that's Jessica Harper from Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. And also Suspiria later. Okay, yeah. I have her down. That's that's one of the people I have down for Penny Lane. The one I think you're going to like more? Sybil Shepard. Nailed it. <laughs> I'd watch that. I'd watch that movie in a heartbeat. So who's the final who's, who's the final picks? So we're going to Sybil Shepard for Penny. Is that, is that what Sybil your Shepherd pick is? Sybil Shepard for Penny. Okay. Uh, Robbie Benson, I think, for William. Yeah, I like Robbie Benson for that. Ellen Burstyn. Ellen Burstyn, yeah. Belushi. As much as I do really enjoy the musical picks, I like Chris Christopherson a lot. I I do I would have I would have liked to have seen more stuff out of James Taylor. He had he he gave some interesting performances, but but I I can't turn down the bridges. Russell Bridges tandem. Yeah. It's it's Uh, hard not to you can't you can't you can't do it. I get it. That, I did. I did some. I did some work on that cast. That was, like... that was yeah. That was stellar. Um, so does this? I think we already know the answer to this. But does this film fit in with any genres other than fictional bands? It does. We talked about one uh, last month, and that's the journalism genre because mm-hmm. uh, he is a journalist and he is trying to tell a story and he tells a story at the end and has the big like the big kind of narration or it's not, it's kind of narration but also uh, uh, Russell's Russell's interview with him. But mm-hmm. also, it's the like we're flying over Tupelo, Mississippi, and I think I'm about to die. Like when they're reading yep. it at Rolling Stone, um, road, and and then also a road trip movie. I think it is a road trip movie, and also maybe a coming of age movie. Coming of age too. There's that too. You're <laughs> right. You're right. It is a coming of age movie. Coming yeah. of age journalism road trip. A lot of four. It's a four. It's a four quadrant movie. That's yep. what it, it sounds hits like. It. Hits everything. And how does this fit in with the the fictional? band genre again it's interesting with this one because the band the band is not the lead and there's very few movies that i can think of where the fictional band is not the lead um but i still think when people think of fictional bands still water and almost mm-hmm. famous is always towards the top no matter if it's not about the band i think it's like i really do think it's like it's almost famous it's that thing you do. I think also it's Blues Brothers in a way. Um, and then like even I think Inside Lewin Davis. But then also, I mean, there's like we're covering a couple of these with Josie and the Pussycats and even Walk Hard. Like that's kind of the Mount Rushmore feels like to me of like mm-hmm. in terms of popularity. School of Rock as well. 
that's like the popular ones that everyone's going to think of as those those movies. And I think this is, is up there. And I think it's one of, the, one of the few ones that really blends. That thing you do is all about kind of like original music. This really does blend the the 70, the Stillwater songs with also the 70s vibe as well fairly yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that they, they both took kind of different paths to, you know, you were talking about Hanks had the music written so that we wouldn't be hearing songs from that era to take us out of this like fictional version he had built. Whereas Crow does the exact opposite and he's peppering all these real songs around it to the point where you're almost like, Oh yeah. Like I know all these other songs. Yeah. I remember fever dog. Like it was, uh, <laughs> it was right up there with all those Zeppelin songs. Like, yeah. Cause there was a band. We didn't talk about this, but there was a band called Stillwater mm-hmm. at around this time. They're on the same record label as the Allman brothers. Yeah. But it was not crow, crow was not like tight with them. And it was kind of a coincidence that, that he named it that. Is that, is that, that's almost famous. That That's almost famous. Thank you for, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> thanks for coming along on uh, what turns out was both of our quintessential coming of age films for our Apparently, for us. Years. Yeah. Yeah. And now I can never talk about it ever again on the show. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah, it was fun. So that's all we have. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Apple Podcasts is kind of the big one, but any of them work. Yeah, guys, let us know what you're thinking of this new month, This the theme this month. What are your favorite of the films in this genre? Let us know what you think of what you want to hear in the future, what, what you're enjoying out of the categories. You know, it's a great way to give us feedback and also please engage with us on social media. We'd love to hear what you're thinking. So, so anyway, if you want to leave a review, if you want to reach out to us on any of our platforms, uh, really, we love feedback. It lets us know you're out there, you're listening, you're enjoying it or you're hating it either way. That's, let that's us know. all we need to know guys. We want some sort of validation. Good or, good or bad. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, as, as Thomas said, if you haven't already, like, reach out to us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Contact us there. Um, yeah, Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. My only regret is that we can't pepper this podcast episode with 1970s rock needle drops. But yeah, guys, thank you all for listening. Hope you have to listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.